We have some breaking news uh, just came out. Bloomberg story is saying that U.S. antitrust officials are poised to sue Qualcomm for allegedly using unfair practices in the way it licenses its technology. As it happens, we have with us uh, Jennifer Ree, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst. Uh, Jennifer, um, I, I know this news just came out, but what's what's your reaction to it, and what do you think the significance might be? Well, you know, yeah, yes, it did just come out. And, and part of the reason these things kind of seem like they come from out of the blue is that the FTC has been investigating Qualcomm since, I think, even early 2014, and it's completely confidential. And sometimes these investigations can last a year, sometimes they can last three years, you know, until they decide whether it should just fade away or whether they should take steps. Um, and, and so you never really know that what that's going to happen. And I imagine that this probably comes out of that investigation. Uh, and what we at, at least had understood about that um, from disclosures by the company and, and other leaks was that the FTC was looking at whether or not Qualcomm was fairly and in a non-discriminate non-discriminate manner licensing its patents that are needed for stand uh, its patents that are needed for essential technologies. So so if there's a standard and a company must have the patent to uh, you know manufacture as along the lines of that standard and and they must license the Qualcomm IP. Qualcomm has agreed at some point that they'll do that in a fair manner, and, th- and that's what we understand the FTC's been looking at. Thanks, Jennifer. Uh, it is a big new, big day for antitrust news. The Supreme Court today dashed the hopes of J.P. Morgan, Citigroup, and Bank of America by refusing to shield them from what could be billions of dollars in liability. The companies are among the banks being sued, being accused of rigging LIBOR. That's the interest rate benchmark used to value more than $300 trillion of securities worldwide. A federal appeals court refused to throw out the claims, and the Supreme Court today said it would not hear the bank's appeal of that ruling. The focus of the case now returns to a federal district court in Manhattan, which is where 16 banks are defending themselves in the antitrust case. With us to discuss what the Supreme Court rebuff means and what's next in the litigation uh, is Robert Hockett, a professor at Cornell University Law School, and Jennifer Ree, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst. Uh, Bob, what what were the banks arguing in the Supreme Court appeal, and did they actually have a realistic shot at, in, in your view, at getting the Supreme Court to to take up the case? Yeah, so I, I think it was sort of a hail mary play from the from from the very beginning, um, and, and the reason is this: um, there are certain very important, as you know, benchmarks and indices that are used by the broader markets on a daily basis, right, to determine what how to price various transactions that they engage in. Uh, and unfortunately, or maybe for better or worse, uh, it is inevitably the case that a lot of these important benchmarks and indices are essentially determined through the trading activities of a, a few, a relatively few, very large players. LIBOR, which of course is, a, is an interest rate benchmark, is one of those. It's essentially determined by the transactions of a relatively small number of banks. Now, what that means is that it is inherently subject to the possibility of antitrust abuse. And if the banks that do set that rate engage in any kind of practice that looks to be manipulative, it will be virtually per se an antitrust violation. So what the banks did is they were trying to argue that, look, we're not really subject to the antitrust laws, at least where this is concerned. But that was almost that was bound to be a losing argument if indeed it was found um, that there might be actual manipulative activity going on. And that, of course, was the predicate of the case in the first place. So I think it was a, a definite, it was a really unlikely uh, to succeed sort of play. The argument now is going to have to focus on the particulars. Was there actually manipulative activity? Jen, 
Did the fact that one bank, Barclays, has agreed to pay $120 million to settle claims against it affect the justice's decision? It, it probably does. I mean, it, officially, it never does, right? Officially speaking, uh, the Justice Department is going to say, look, this is all being considered on merits on the one hand, and, and then also on the, you know, the strength of the merits, and thus the likelihood of prevailing. Um, on the other hand, as a sort of a practical matter, it's just it would be impossible, I think, for any prosecutor to ignore the fact that one of the possible defendants has decided that, well, there's enough risk of losing here just to go ahead and settle and get out of the way. It has to be encouraging to the prosecution. Jennifer, can you tell us a little bit more about what the banks are accused of doing here? Oh, sure. So this stems out of the conduct the plaintiffs claim started sometime around 2007. And what they're claiming is that the banks falsely reported, they suppressed the LIBOR rate, the ultimate LIBOR rate, because they falsely reported their own borrowing rates. Um, you know, I'm sorry, Greg, before I finish, I actually need to disclose because we are talking about J.P. Morgan here. And I do need disclose, to disclose that I have J.P. Morgan stock. Now, back to my answer. So the banks, um, what the plaintiffs are claiming is that they, 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 they colluded to falsely report their rate, their own borrowing rate, which is, you know, what they're reporting as a panel to get LIBOR. And that then suppressed the LIBOR rate. And for those plaintiffs that had instruments tied to the LIBOR for which they were getting paid, uh, rather than, you know, a loan based on LIBOR interest rates, but, but let's say a bondholder, they're claiming that those suppressed rates hurt them because it hurt their rate of return. And is that a good argument? You know, if, again, we... We're still, even though this case has been around for like four years now, we're still sort of in the beginning stages of the evidence because this all started with a motion to dismiss that the district court granted on antitrust, and then it went through some procedural loops until it got to the Supreme Court. Um, If, in fact, there's evidence of this manipulation and collusion, there could be an antitrust claim here. It's not a typical price-fixing claim, but it's a claim that they colluded to manipulate a benchmark that went into price. Bob, the uh, banks, uh, not just these, but other banks, are, have been facing a variety of, of antitrust and price-fixing claims, uh, you know, foreign exchange manipulation, commodities, uh, price rigging. Where, where do you sort of put this case on the, the seriousness scale in terms of uh, both what they, what they allegedly did wrong and, and the kind of threat it might pose to the banks in terms of liability? Sure. I, I would say this one carries sort of maximum seriousness in the sense that this is sort of right at the core of this sort of cluster of cases that you just identified. Again, the, the key point here, and I think Jennifer brought it up quite well as well, is that essentially there are certain benchmarks that lots of things are priced by reference to. And so another way of saying that is to say lots of people are in effect betting on particular prices that are especially important out in the markets because they serve as sort of reference prices, benchmarks for other prices. Now, if a particular institution plays a critically important role in setting that benchmark price on the one hand, and then at the same time can be shown to have been betting on the price on the other, well, that would be a bit like, you know, Alan Greenspan going out and buying a bunch of stock just before he knows he's going to say something about the company in question and he knows it's going to move the price, right? I mean, it's clearly manipulative. It's, it's, it would be a kind of insider trading-like thing. The antitrust element comes in when you've got essentially a small number of institutions that do that setting. And so you can sort of say, okay, you've got collusive behavior here as well. So this uh, 
LIBOR is such an important benchmark rate when it comes to setting interest rates and then when it comes to determining the prices of various bond instruments and various derivative securities that anybody who actually does manipulate LIBOR is, is manipulating something that is just central to so many markets out there that is extremely serious. So everything hinges on whether, in fact, there was that manipulation. But there seems what the Supreme Court effectively has told us is that if there was such manipulation, then there's no question but that an antitrust action can be brought in addition to all of the other actions that can be brought. Jen, the banks argued the wrong results could be economically devastating. What could the ultimate liability be? Well, in fact, even the Second Circuit said that because when the Second Circuit revived antitrust, overturned the district court's opinion, the um, the court said, look, you, you know, if there truly is an antitrust, if, if all the evidence bears this out and we have an antitrust claim here and all the plaintiffs here have an antitrust claim, because maybe not all of them do, maybe just some of them do because there are other elements that they need to prove, this could bankrupt some of the world's biggest banks. And part of the reason for that is because with antitrust comes triple damages. It's automatically worked into the law. So if there's a finding of, you know, 40 billion or 50 billion in damages, it's automatically tripled and it's huge. Um, and even we don't know yet what the actual claims are by these plaintiffs. One, one class only, and there are many classes, said 45 billion just for their class. The Second Circuit did leave open the possibility the suit ultimately could be dismissed on other grounds. I want to thank our guests, Jennifer Ree of Bloomberg Intelligence, Robert Hackett of Cornell University, 